Well, again, happy Advent to everyone. And uh, I don't know about you, but for me, I can't believe it's already the fourth Sunday of the season. Seems like it was just yesterday that we were at Thanksgiving, and now the end of this week uh, we'll be at Christmas. So uh, it, it's great. It's a special time of year, uh, for sure. Uh, or as the, uh, the song uh, puts it, in many ways, it's the most wonderful time of year. Now, of course, I, I realize it doesn't always feel that way uh, for, for all of us. At times, many of us uh, struggle with distraction and disappointment and discouragement, and so it can be a very hard time of year. Uh, nonetheless, this is, is still a season that is embraced by so many people, and, and not only within the church, uh, but throughout our culture and, and really around the world. And it's a season marked by wonder and awe and anticipation. You know, just think about the beauty of lights and decorations, the joy of songs and carols, the giving and receiving of gifts. And why is it that that so many, uh, Christian and non-Christian alike, why is it that so many embrace this season so much. Why? It's because we're wired for it. That's right, we're wired for it. We are invited into something that we are wired for. We are invited into something bigger than ourselves, something more beautiful and hopeful. We're invited into wonder and awe and anticipation. Well, again, in our passage this morning, uh, we encounter a band of brothers, a, a company of wise men, uh, magi from the east. They're on a long journey, a quest together. And they've been captured by something. They've been captured by something bigger than, their sel- than themselves, uh, something more beautiful and hopeful. And so they themselves are caught up in, in wonder and awe and anticipation. And it all starts when they see a star. And so this morning, what we're going to do is take a look at the larger context surrounding the story that we've been in these past three weeks, uh, where the the three wise men give their gifts. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And before we hear this part of, God, this part of God's word, uh, let's go to him in prayer. Well, Almighty God, we do thank you uh, once again for the gift of your word. And we would ask now that by the power of your spirit that you would open your word to us and us to your word. That you would open the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus more clearly, and also to delight in him more fully. And it's in his name that we come, and in his name that we pray. Amen. And so now I invite you to hear the word of God, uh, Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, 
wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them when the Christ, where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, just as it is written by the prophet. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And this is God's word. Well, it is an an amazing part of the Christmas story. And you know, the gospel writer Matthew includes it because it's true. It's true. And it's a story that we need to hear again and again. And there, there are two significant aspects of the story that we can clearly see here in our passage. Uh, Two Advent themes, if you will, uh, pursuit and adoration. And so that's how we're going to take a look at our passage this morning. Uh, First, pursuit, and then adoration. And so we begin with pursuit, uh, verses 1 through 9. In verse 1, starts, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And so again, a company of men on an expedition, a journey, a quest. And as as, as we've already heard in in, in prior weeks, uh, these wise men weren't actually kings. Uh, They were magi. Uh, Magi, a, a Greek word coming from the same root as our English word, magic. They're pagan astrologers whose practices included dream interpretation, a study of sacred writings, and the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And so they were often sought out for counsel because they were seen as being wise men. Now also, as we have already heard, no one knows exactly how many there were. We know that they did bring at least three specific gifts. But there were probably dozens of leaders and soldiers and servants in a a large entourage. That is, uh, one commentator notes, a group that traveled up to a thousand miles over alien terrain. And so the Magi, why are they on this journey in the first place? What are they in pursuit of? 
Verse 2. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And so they're looking for a newborn king. Or, or actually, and, and, and more accurately, they are looking for a young child. Not, not a baby at this point, because remember, as much as, as two years have passed since the birth of Jesus. But again, let me put your, your hearts and your minds at ease. Your, your manger scenes at home, we've got one. Nativity scenes, they're okay. If they've got camels with three kings in their gifts, they're okay. Because really what they are doing is they are telling a larger story in a single snapshot. So you're good. Okay, with your minds at ease, back to our passage. And so the Magi, what have they been doing all of these weeks and these months? Well, they have been following a star. And as biblical scholar Michael Green points out, in the ancient world, most people believed in astrology. It's not surprising. The steady courses of the heavenly bodies represented the settled order of the universe. And so when some new astronomical happening took place, it was reasonable for them to to suppose that God was breaking into his ordered world and making known some news. Now, interestingly enough, just 50 years earlier, and nobody could have planned this, but 50 years earlier, at the burial of Julius Caesar, a supernova just happened to appear. Okay, and let me tell you, that did amazing things for the astrology business for a number of years, for decades. Because, I mean, people really talked about this. They began to see stars as as associated with the birth and the death of great kings. And further, something else that we know is that at the time of these events uh, in in our passage, that there was a conjunction of, of Jupiter and Saturn. In fact, it was seen three times that year. On May 29th, October 3rd, and December 4th. As R.C. Sproul notes, it may have been a planetary conjunction, or a supernova, or something purely supernatural. Whatever it was, it finally comes to rest over the place where the young child was. And so whatever the case, what's very clear is this. It's clear that God was at work. It's clear that God was at work leading these Gentile pagan astrologers. And eventually, they arrived in Jerusalem. Now, clearly, their their entourage was very large because it caught the attention of King Herod. And he wasn't happy, was he? So, verse 7. Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them exactly what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, the wise men went on their way. And so here we see that another pursuit has begun, that that Herod, King Herod, has begun his own pursuit of the Christ child. Of course, if you are familiar with the story, then you know that this pursuit is not one 
of goodwill. But that's a story for another day. So we're going to stick with our part of chapter 2 in Matthew. And so for now, in, in, in our passage, we see that the wise men, they leave Jerusalem and they head south to Bethlehem. And their pursuit of the Christ child continues. Now, before we shift gears, I want to point out that there is a much more significant pursuit going on here. And it's the pursuit of God. It's God's pursuit of these wise men. Okay, did did you notice the word behold? The word behold, it shows up twice in our passage, uh, verses 1 and 9. And whenever the gospel writer Matthew uses this word behold, it's an emphatic statement. He is saying, hey, pay attention. Pay very close attention because this is very important. So you might think of it as, as bold-faced type whenever Matthew uses that word. And so behold, verse 1, a new star arose in view of the wise men. You see, God initiated. God got their attention and said, follow me in a language that they could understand. And then behold, verse 9, The star went before them and came to rest over the place where the child was. And so not only did God initiate with these men, God also led them and he took them to Jesus. You see, verse 1 and verse 9 bookend the wise men's pursuit of the king. In other words, their very lives are bookended by God, by God's pursuit of them. And it's the very same good news for us. God coming to us. God entering our story. And he's coming back to finish it. Because you see, God bookends our lives too. Amen? Amen. That is good news. And okay, so let's uh, come back to our particular part of the Christmas story. Well, eventually the wise men arrive at the place where the young child was. And what do they do when they get there? What do they do? Well, that leads to our second point. And so second, adoration. Uh, Adoration, verses 9 to 11. I'm going to read them again if you'd like to follow along, picking up with verse 9. And behold... The star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And if you think about that scene, what an amazing scene. What an amazing thing to behold. I mean, it says that they fell down. They fell down and worshipped this child. And the sense given here is that their legs just went out from under them. In his sight, they could not stand. They fell to the ground and worshipped 
because they are so very much filled with wonder and awe. In the presence of the divine, they hit the deck and worship their king. They adored Jesus. But why? I mean, why did they do this? Because remember, these are just pagan astrologers. I mean, they're they're not God's people, are they? They're not Hebrew people. They aren't Jewish. So why would they worship this child? Well, some of you are familiar with the name J.C. Ryle. 19th century Christian, uh, Anglican bishop of of Liverpool for a time, and and he wrote a series of biblical commentaries. And with regard to this particular scene, this is what he said of the wise men. They saw no miracles to convince them. They heard no wise words out of his mouth. They saw nothing but a young child on the lap of a poor woman, and yet they worshipped him. For what they saw, for when they saw this child, they believed that what they saw was actually the divine Savior of the world. And we read of no greater faith than this in the whole volume of the Bible. Now that's a powerful statement. Pagan astrologers from the East worshipped Jesus. And why? Well, because God is calling the nations to himself, calling people from every tongue, every nation, every tribe. And by God's grace, these men from afar, these men who are in search of wisdom, knowledge, understanding, meaning, they realize this is it. This is what we have been searching for our entire lives. And they are filled with joy and wonder and awe. And so friends, whatever it is you are or have been looking for your entire life, this is it. It can only be found in this child. Well, in his classic book, Mere Christianity... Now, C.S. Lewis writes, If I find in myself desires which no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Human beings are hardwired for wonder and awe. We are worshipers. We are in constant pursuit of joy, hope, and fulfillment. And this longing is deep in the heart of every human being. It wanders around in your soul. Your heart cries out every day to be enveloped by the glory of God. And Lewis continues. You see, we are on a quest. All of us. A quest for life. And there are only two places to look. We can search for life in what? God has created, or we can look to the creator himself, to whom and by whom all things exist. Okay, so so did you hear that? Do you hear what he's saying? That we are hardwired, all of us, for wonder and awe, that we are worshipers 
at our, at our very core that we are all in constant pursuit of joy, hope, and fulfillment. That we are all on a quest for life. And so do you realize that is the very thing that gets stirred up within each of us during this time of year? That's why we're filled with such wonder and awe and anticipation during the Christmas story, the Christmas season. It is because we are hardwired for something bigger than ourselves, something more beautiful and hopeful. We are hardwired for joy and wonder and awe. And so like these wise men, we too must learn to look beyond what the eye can see. But what do we typically do? I mean, most of us typically are only looking about 10 feet in front of us, right? Most of the time, that's pretty much how we go about life, just about 10 feet in front of us. But think about these wise men. They were always looking up, looking ahead. They were stargazers. They looked beyond this world, beyond what the eye can see, to something bigger than themselves, again, something more beautiful and hopeful. And friends, this is what we are wired to do too. And so I want to encourage you to encourage your soul to look beyond what the eye can see. Because as the writer of Hebrews puts it, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Okay, take, take a look at verse 10. If you've got your Bible open, verse 10, and we're going to end here. I want you to notice it says that the wise men rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I love that phrase. That's such a great phrase. Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And guess what? That's, that's exactly what it says in the original language, that they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. The word's in a slightly different order, but no matter how you put it, this is an emphatic superlative. This is a big deal. And here's what I want you to see. I want you to note that this rejoicing in verse 10 takes place when? It takes place before they actually see Jesus in verse 11. Their rejoicing takes place before their seeing. And why? Because they were certain that they would see him. And so these wise men are learning the life of faith. They're learning that faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not yet fully see. And if we allow our souls to look beyond what the eye can see, then this can be the case for us too. Even in the midst of hardship and difficulty and disappointment, even in the midst of life's hard, we can know exceeding great joy before we fully see. Now, I'm I'm not talking about superficial happy. I'm I'm not talking about just pretend everything is okay. Not at all. But rather what I'm talking about is a deep abiding joy, deep in your soul, one that is filled with longing, expectation, and anticipation. You know, kind of like a a young child uh, with, with a wrapped Christmas present under the tree. 
A young child holding on to that wrapped present, filled with expectant joy, even while waiting. Because they're certain that they will fully see. The Apostle Peter puts it like this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory as you await the fullness of salvation when Jesus returns. Because you see, brothers and sisters, Advent is definitely a season for looking back, remembering, and celebrating Jesus' first coming, for sure. But equally, it is also a, a season for looking ahead, for anticipating His return. It is a season for looking beyond what the eye can see. It is a season to be gripped by the victory of God. By the gift of God in Jesus. The one born on Christmas Day. The one born to die for us. That we might be forgiven of sin and reconciled to God. That we might be raised with Him when He returns to make all things new. His second coming. His second coming. Advent. For God entered our story, and He's coming back to finish it. And this is the gift of Christmas forever. Don't miss it. Let's pray. Oh, our good and gracious God. Oh, how we thank you that you have come to us, for us, in Jesus. And all so that we might know you powerfully and personally. That we might be filled, even now, with joy, wonder, awe, and anticipation. And oh, how we long for his return. And even now, we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.